listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. So 29, I posted this last week and, and just a, a, a quick review. The reason we've titled the series 29 is because Acts 29 is the scariest chapter in the Bible. When you study scripture, you'll go, there's no 29. There is a 29. You'll find the first uh, 28 chapters are canonized in the book of Acts. But 29 is a chapter that God is desiring to pen and write in you and through you today that's never been written. It is the work of the Holy Spirit bringing about a new work because we are his body and the church. And so the, the question we posed is, are you, are you available and are you useful for God to do whatever he desires to do? The Cross Loganville is a church. The word church, ecclesia, it means those who have been called out of the world, those who belong to the Lord. Now here, we are a church here. And the word church implies that we are a movement. We're not a monument. We're not a building. We're not a location. The only word for church in the Bible that we read was the church that Jesus started. Listen, listen to this. In Matthew 16, Jesus takes his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And while he's there with the disciples, this was a very pagan, sinful place that he took them. He looked at his disciples and he said, who do people say that I am? And some of the disciples said, uh, some people say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, whatever. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, upon that rock statement, boulder statement, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church, ecclesia, and the church that I build, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. So the church literally are those who repent of their sin, place their faith and confidence in Christ, who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When a person says, I'm going to church, it's impossible to go to what you are. We are the church. We go to congregate with other believers. But the church that Jesus built was elastic and flexible and transient. And it was on the move and it was active and it was involved and it was engaged in the community. So, so you do have to ask yourself this question. Is church a place you attend, or is it a movement that you're a part of? And, and, and if you would say that church is only a place that you attend, you, you need to repent of that because that is an inaccurate view of what Jesus started. Jesus was going to launch a movement, the church, and it starts the birth and the early history is in the book of Acts. And, and, and so when we get into the book of Acts, it's the story of God's grace saturating the world. The major theme throughout the book of Acts, when you read it and ponder it, is the spread of the gospel to the nations. It starts in Jerusalem, and it ends up spreading throughout the world. And Jesus even said, after my death and my burial, this crucifixion and re resurrection, he prophesied that the gospel would explode to the nations. And it did. It started with this ragamuffin, ragtag group in Jerusalem. 
and it spread throughout the world. And we here in Loganville are the recipients of the gospel exploding and spreading because somebody somewhere decided that they would be a part of the Acts 29 movement, what God was desiring to do that hadn't been done, and they would take the gospel to the world. And it made it here, even to your heart and your home. So when you study the book of Acts, you're going to see, again, the preaching of the gospel. As I said last week, Benji, Peter preaches eight sermons in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul preaches nine sermons. Stephen preaches a very long sermon. Even James preaches a short sermon. There's a bite, about 19 sermons preached in the book of Acts, which tells us the proclamation of God's gospel is crucial. And so what you're going to see is the preaching of the gospel draws people in and sends people out on mission. You see, the proclamation of the gospel never draws, listen, listen, it never draws people in to occupy a seat where they only sit and soak. The preaching of the gospel draws people into the person and power of Christ, but it sends them out on mission. Every person that meets Christ and, and is repented and surrendered is on mission. And, and Acts 29 is about being on mission for the king. And when you study the book of Acts, the cool thing is there's no discrimination in this book here. There's no social and racial tension, if you will, in this book here. The gospel is being declared. And it screams in the book of Acts that no one, no one, no one is beyond the reach of God's saving power. So if you've got people in your life that you've written off because they've They've just lived in sin too long, and they're hellions in your life. They're, they're beyond it. They're not. The power of the gospel can, can, can save anyone. A any person is a candidate to receive God's redeeming and amazing grace. And, and the teaching throughout the book of Acts is the saturation of God's grace being poured out on people. Now, let me give you some backdrop, please. Most scholars would agree that Luke is the author and the writer of the book of Acts. Luke. If you read Luke chapter 1, just listen to this, verses 1 through 4. This is how Luke starts his gospel, if you will. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. This is Luke. He's, he's like, a lot of people have set out, man, to try to write this stuff down about all this stuff regarding the Christ. It's where he's going about these events among us. They used, here's crucial piece, they used eyewitnesses and their reports that were circulating among us that came from the early disciples. And this is what Luke says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an accurate, these are words that I circle when I'm doing the study. Eyewitnesses, I'm circling it. Carefully investigated, I'm circling it. Okay? I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I uh, decided to write an accurate account for you. Accuracy. I wanted to write it to you, most honorable Theophilus. 
so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. You see those words there. I, I went to eyewitnesses. Because the credibility of what we're talking about is based on eyewitnesses, not just theories of, of, of some drifters out there. Everything that I'm talking to you about came from people that walked with Jesus during his three years of earthly ministry, that, that saw him walk the Via Della Rosa, that witnessed the crucifixion, that saw him placed in the tomb, that saw him raised on the third day. Every person that I'm, I'm, I'm talking to was a credible witness, and we'll get into that more next week. But I wanted you to have truth. I wanted you to have certainty. I wanted you to have clarity. Now listen to Acts 1. This is what Luke says to most honorable Theophilus in Luke. Then he says, in my first book, back to the gospel, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. You remember that first account that I wrote to you I shared with you everything that Jesus did. I, I, I even shared some genealogy, and I talked to you about his birth. And I even talked about John the Baptist and Zacharias and Elizabeth, how they conceived and how Zacharias went mute. I, I, you remember I told you about that, and I told you about how Mary and Joseph, and I told you about Jesus' birth. I, I went all the way back and told you all this stuff until the time he, he, he was ascended. I, I, I captured the crucifixion. I talked to you about how the Romans, I, I, I did all that. Now, now, in my first book, Theophilus, I, I, I talked about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after giving his chosen apostles further instruction through the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me tell you, I'm writing this to you. I'm going to get to it on who Theophilus is. But Luke is a very trusted writer. Luke was a companion of Paul, and Paul loved Luke. Even in Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to Luke as the beloved or faithful doctor and physician. That's what he calls him. He, he goes, man, this faithful brother by the name of Luke who is a doctor, he, he's right here with me. Even later in Acts, we'll read, where he calls him a fellow laborer. He goes, not only is he a faithful doctor taking care of people's needs, this dude is a fellow laborer in the distri uh, distribution of the gospel. Luke gets his hands dirty. Luke's in it. So when you study it, Luke and Paul probably hooked up during Paul's second missionary journey as he went to Asia Minor. This is important. I I'm reading through this going, all right, when did they connect? And, and when Paul went to Jerusalem and Rome and some of these other places, he was with him. Here's something very interesting to me. Even when Paul was arrested, Barb and I, when we were in Israel four or five years ago, whenever it was, we went to a place called Caesarea, not Caesarea Philippi where Jesus took him, but Caesarea that's located on the Mediterranean. And, and we went there, and, and as we was doing this tour, there, there's these big, Theaters where the proclamation of the gospel and all these different things would happen. We've been there, Dustin. You've been to Israel. You've been to Jerusalem. But, but there, in, in Caesarea, there was this uh, big uh, stone building. And they said, that right there is where Paul was in prison here. And they said, Luke was with him here. And while Paul was locked up in prison, Luke, Luke, he walked and roamed this area 
talking to as many eyewitnesses as he could who had been around during the public ministry of Jesus. And they said many believe it was right here in this area where Luke was compiling so much of his stuff. And it's here, many believe, that when Paul writes to Timothy, that second letter to Timothy, and he tells Timothy, realize this, and the end times, difficult times are going to come. People will be lovers of self and money and pleasure. They're going to have a form of godliness, and they're going to turn from truth. And he's writing all this stuff, and you get to chapter 4, and he goes, I want you to know, my life is about to expire. I fought a good fight, and I've kept the faith. And, he, and, and Paul writes this. Paul writes this. He goes, hey, hey, would you send me my parchments, my writings? Would you send me my cloak? Man, it's cold here. Hey, hey. Demas left me because he loved this present world too much. And then he says this. This is it. Only Luke is with me. This is the dude writing this. This is a faithful friend and companion of the gospel who is a fellow laborer. So when we pick this up, we go, who is Luke? Luke's faithful. And Luke gives more detail and he explanation in his gospel than any other gospel writer does. He had more opportunity. Even Acts 27, when we get there, he, Luke even shares about all these things and experiences that him and Paul had together. And he goes, man, I'm just telling you, Theophilus, I want you to have an accurate account. I want you to be certain. Theophilus, write it down. Theo, God. Theophilus, Philus. Loved by or friend of. I'm writing to you, friend of God. I'm writing to you, loved of God. That's what Theophilus' name means. I'm writing to you because I want you to have certainty. And he calls him, and he calls him most honorable, which most scholars believe that Theophilus was the magistrate judge that Paul had to stand before in Rome. And they believed that because Paul was being arrested so often that Luke being Paul's sidekick developed a friendship with this magistrate judge and started sharing the good news with him. So when he writes to Theophilus, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm writing this to you. I want you to have an accurate account because you're a magistrate judge. And I want you to know that these Christ followers, they're not a threat to the Roman empire. They're not here trying to take over. I just want you to know these guys are legit. You and I have developed a friendship and I just want you to have an accurate understanding of what the truth is. Hey, hey, just stop for a second. Just stop for a second. You go, great historical information. No, stop for a second. Remember when Paul even was writing the book that we call Philippians? And in chapter 2, Paul goes, uh, uh, and in chapter 1, he says, I want you to know that I'm in prison for the gospel, and I want you to know that my circumstances are going to turn out for the greater progress of the gospel. While I'm in prison, I'm chained to these praetorian guards, and as a result of being in chains, all these jailers and guards around me are hearing the gospel. Did you, did you get me? No matter where I'm at, the gospel can't be stopped. They're chaining me up and they're locking me up and they've got me in prison and I'm talking to people about the gospel. That's what Luke was doing with Theophilus. We're going to arrest Paul. We're going to shut him up. And Luke goes, I'm going to share with that dude. He's one of the dudes I'm going to talk to 
most honorable magistrate judge, Theophilus. I want you to know the truth. And sometimes I think we put parameters and guardrails around being used by God for God to write a new chapter based on our circumstances or environment. And if we study even Luke, they couldn't stop the gospel. He was in chains to the gospel. So even there, he's writing to Theophilus, mind-blowing. Think about it. When he writes to Theophilus, it is one man writing to another man. Almost 30% of the New Testament is written from one guy, Luke, to his buddy Theophilus laying it out. 27 to 30% of the New Testament is written by Luke. I mean, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. No man ever wrote anything. They were inspired by the Spirit. But he, one guy, he wrote, we, we would say, well, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. He wrote the majority of books in number, but not volume Luke did. John was used by the Lord. He writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and God even uses him to pen Revelation. But Luke writes the majority of it. And there's something mind-blowing. He's the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. All the rest of them were Jews. He was a non-Jew. That they should give us so much courage and confidence that you don't have to have this royal pedigree and, and bloodline to be used by God. He goes, Theophilus, I'm writing to you because God cares about you. He wants you to know him. Y'all with me? I love the history when you get into it. You've got to get some backdrop of understanding. So out of the four Gospels, I will tell you, Luke is the most detailed of the four. He writes in chronological order. He's a professional dude who's a doctor who gives incredible explanation with historical accuracy. And so many people have used the Gospel of Luke to point others to Christ. Here, here's a fascinating thing, just sidebar. Luke. Charles Dickens, one of the great writers of literature in our day, right? Charles Dickens called Luke chapter 15, just that one chapter. He called it the pearl of the parables. He said it was the gospel within the gospels. Charles Dickens said that was the greatest piece of literature ever written. And it's when Jesus is hanging out seeing tax collectors and thieves and prostitutes. They're coming to him and they're getting set free. And if you read Luke 15 verse 1 and 2, it says that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were getting ticked at Jesus because he hung out with notorious sinners and despicable people. And Jesus goes, cool. Let me tell y'all a few stories. And he gives the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and really, it's the story of the prodigal father. It's the love of the father. And Dickens goes, that's the greatest piece of literature ever written. Written by Luke. Guided by the Holy Spirit. Because Luke, being a doctor, says, all right, let me, let me, let me explain it this way. So when you go, so why do you think God used him to write Acts? Here, here's some things, just a few. To provide an accurate account 
of what the beginning of the Christian gospel and church looked like. I want you to have an accurate view and understanding of how this church was launched. Two, I, I want to strengthen every follower of Jesus to stay strong because your faith is legit and Jesus is alive. Three, I want you to know that the foundation of the gospel is secure and it's firm and you can have assurance you, as you walk into the future, the gospel is not going anywhere. So, so Luke really wrote to give people confidence and hope. Now I said last week that even in the gospel of Luke, he, he lays out everything he writes is the emphasis is on the person of Christ and that Jesus is God. He wrote, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He wrote, Jesus came for all people so that none would perish. He came to seek and to save all. That's what Luke writes about. Uh, Jesus died for the sins of all. Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills the old covenant. He is King of kings. He's Lord of lords. Jesus is for all. That, 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 that's what he's writing in his gospel. Now he picks it up and acts. Before I get there, it's, it's all about Christ, though. Listen to this passage in Luke 24. He captures this. He said, Jesus said, remember Luke writing, Theophilus, let me tell you what Jesus said was going to happen. He said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law, the law of Moses, everything that the prophets talked about, and everything that the Psalms recorded must be fulfilled. Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die, that he would rise from the dead on the third day. It was written that this message, it was written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, there is forgiveness for sins to all who repent. You are, you are witnesses of all these things. And now I'm going to send the Holy Spirit just as the Father promised but stay in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from on high. Here's what you see. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is everything the Old Testament prophesied about. The law of Moses, the prophets, even the psalmist writes about him. Jesus then launches the new covenant through his shed blood, and he promises the Holy Spirit's coming. That's where we pick it up. And Acts, you see, his church that he started, his church that believes that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, believes that he is the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords, is to start witnessing wherever they're at. That's what happened. So here's a few things I've been praying for you. It's like I'm praying this for you. Right, I want you to hear it. I'm praying this for you, Billy and Carolyn. I'm praying this across this room. I'm praying this for you, Ray and Michelle. I'm across this room, I'm praying this for you. Here's six things, Michael. Rachel, here's six things. Here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that as we study the book of Acts, every one of you, I'm praying that God will give you more boldness and more confidence in the gospel of Jesus. I, I pray that as we go through this, you'll have more boldness to share it, talk about it, and more confidence in it than ever before in your life too. I'm praying that you will have a deeper resolve to know the word of God. 
that it won't just be something you pick up randomly and occasionally. My prayer is that you would have this deep resolve to know the word of God. Three, that you will trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God no matter what's going on. That's a, that's a, that's a knee buckler right there. That's tough for us sometimes, right? I'm trusting the sovereignty of God. I'm trusting that God is God and God is in control. Because sometimes when we see all the chaos in our world, if we're not careful, we start to elevate and emphasize the waywardness of man instead of the goodness of God. Y'all with me? If you're not careful, you don't celebrate the goodness of God. Out of my five kids, I've got one that's pretty much could do stand-up comedy. His name's Jesse. And Benji knows it. He's an incredible jokester and storyteller. But we talk a lot of times in the mornings when he's either on the way to work or when he's gotten to work. So yesterday, I was shooting down to Monroe, and me and him were talking. And we're laughing about this, talking about that. So I said, hey, man, i got to go. We'll talk later. And he goes, all right. So I stop at the Walmart in Monroe, and I'm going to get gas. Okay? So I pull in, and all of a sudden, I'm just looking. And I'm like, hmm. So I pull up to the pump, turn off my truck, 369, which today is probably 379 and 399 tomorrow. Y'all hold on to me now. Hold on. But while I was pumping gas, I just stood there and started laughing. And I was like, check this out. So I fill up my truck, get back in the truck, take off, and I call Jesse. I said, Jesse. He goes, what's up? I said, hey, I just got gas. I got a theory. He goes, you got a theory. I said, my theory is this. I believe it's wiser to buy gas at the end of the day than it is first thing in the morning. Hear me out. He goes, why? I said, because if you buy gas first thing in the morning, there is a good chance you may be royally ticked for the rest of the day. <laughs> but if you buy it at night, you can't linger on it too long and you go to sleep. And he goes, Dad, I love your theory. Now, he's my comic relief person. That sounds like something he would call Benji and tell us, but it sounds like something Jesse would say. But I laughed about it. Just hear me. Just hear me. If you talk to the wrong people, they will, gri they will gripe about it. If you talk to the wrong people, they're going to gossip about it. If you talk to the wrong people, they're going to bash every person in political office, and they're going to bash whatever. Just stop, just stop for a second. And what they're basically saying in the griping and complaining and putting down, they're really saying God's not sovereign and God's not good. Man is stupid, especially the people in office right now. That's where they would go with it. I think part of growth is stopping and recognizing the goodness and sovereignty of God of wherever we're at. So I'm standing there going, you got to be kidding me. I'm driving a 2010 Toyota Tundra. I did not cruise up here on the back of a donkey on a dirt road. And I'm standing there looking at that truck. And I'm standing there thinking that I even have enough money to get gas to put in that truck. Come on, T. And if we're not careful, we start to empower chaos instead of saying, look at the goodness of God. Look at the sovereignty of God. 
God's even given me breath today. Pick up the obituary. I'm 59 years old. There were people 58, 55, 52, 45, 27 dying yesterday, and I've got a breath again today. So y'all are free to use my theory. All right, so here's another thing I'm praying. This would be number four. But I'm praying that we would understand the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For a lot of my friends growing up in the Baptist, conservative, even Presbyterian circles, I can promise you the Holy Spirit was treated like a redheaded stepchild. There was no power. There was no dunamis. There was no person of the Holy Spirit that resided inside of us. I'm praying that we would fall deeper in love with the triune God, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. And he says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Now, you might quench me with your attitude and stuff at times, but I'm not going to leave you. I'm praying that we would grow deeper in our fullness of understanding the person of the Holy Spirit. And let me say this. If you grew up charismatic and extreme Pentecostal, the Holy Spirit is not a part of some of that tripped out stuff that I've seen over the years too extreme that way either. So I believe the Holy Spirit is a person, but as God would tell us in Scripture, he's not a God of chaos and disorder. Here's another one, that we would develop a deeper love for Jesus' church. That would be important. If he's going to build his church and we're a part of it, then let's develop a deeper love for the church. And that God would give us more zeal to take the gospel to the world, Dustin. I mean, that's what we would pray, right? That we would be zealous for the gospel. Now, let me show you how simple you can do this as you go through it. I'm only going to stay in the first eight or nine verses here. But you can take your Bible, open it up with a notebook, journal, whatever, and you can just say, I'm going to write down some bullet points. Take one verse, take two or three verses, and write down bullet points as you go through it. I want you to engage with the book of Acts and study it. So, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. He goes ahead and lays out there, hey, I'm writing to Theophilus, all this stuff. Hey, I want you to have an accurate account, etc." And then he goes, he's writing to Theophilus and he says, during the 40 days after Jesus suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. This blew their minds, right? There's not a dead man walking ever heard of. We'll get into that next week. The Egyptians, they mummified people and even the Greco-Roman world of that time, there was no such thing as a resurrection. So he's writing saying, you know that Jesus appeared to the apostles from time to time after his death and resurrection. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Listen, listen to this. You can do this. I promise you it's not hard. You can take notes. You can dive in and study. So here's what I would write. Just me. And you can write whatever. But I just wrote, Jesus is alive, exclamation point. Just, that's, that's, that's what he said. Jesus gives the disciples confidence that he is God and he's alive. That's just a simple point. He gave them many undeniable proofs that he's God and he's alive. If that's the only thing you read tomorrow and take away, let's say you're reading Acts 1, you go, I'm going to take those first three verses, I'm just going to make a a couple simple observations. And if I walk through the day going, Jesus is alive, and Jesus proved it repeatedly that he's alive, and he showed these disciples that he was alive. Pretty good takeaway. Get into verses 4 and 5. Hey, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. 
As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let's just take it. Just take it. Just take it. Jesus commands them to wait on the Holy Spirit. If I'm writing down my notes the way I'm wired, you've already heard my pumping gas the way I think. I just write something down like wait. What a brutal four-letter word, W-A-I-T-S. We don't like to wait. We don't know how to wait. He told them to wait. Let me just make a note like that. That's for me. I'm just writing in my journal. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. That's where he's building. He's building on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is for all people. The kingdom of God is expanding. Wait! Okay, let's just write down wait. The Holy Spirit's coming, wait. Verses 6 through 9. So, when the apostles were with Jesus, who were they with? Jesus. What Jesus? The Jesus that had been crucified, buried, and raised. They're with an alive man, not a dead man. They were with Jesus. They kept asking Jesus, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has that authority. He's going to set dates and times. They're not for you to know. Let me tell you what there is for you to know. Don't worry about dates. Don't worry about times. Don't be consumed with the restoration of Israel. Here's all I want you to focus on. Wait. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and falls on you and indwells you. And as a result, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. Just wait. Don't worry about that. Just focus on this. Just wait. And when the Holy Spirit comes, that'll be enough for you. Okay. And it says, this is, this, it, read, just read it. Have fun with it. And after saying these things, Jesus ascended. Hey, just think about it. If they had gotten a text and Jesus said, hey, listen, I'm going to show you one more time and prove to you that I'm alive. And I'm going to hang with you. Now you got 45 seconds. Now, while I'm talking to you, I got 45 seconds. It's going to trip you out because I'm going to take off like Superman right in front of your eyes. 45 seconds. You can ask me anything you want to ask. Hey, are you going to restore Israel? If Jesus would have sent them a text, I swear they would have asked a different question here. He's gone. Well, I guess our question time is over. What are you going to do? We're going to go wait. Because that right there was a trip. Never seen that before. Never will see it again. Just wait. And as followers of Jesus now... We get to become his witness to the nations. We get to take the good news to our neighborhoods and to the nation. And a witness, when you study the word witness, it is a term used for a person in court that just testified about what they had seen and what they had heard. And I've spent a lot of time over the last week looking at the power of a credible witness and looking at some jacked up witnesses. And even watching that video that we talked about, Nick sent me the other day, I'm like, that is, that's some bad witnesses right there. If you remember the OJ trial, Cato Kalin was not a good witness. 
Cato looked like he'd been smoking dope, surfing all day, and they just like dropped him off on the stand. And it's like, dude, you were a bad witness. And the credibility of a witness can make or break your case for you. You've been given the privilege to be God's witness to your world. And your credibility for some people is all they know about Jesus. And if you're a liar and you're a cheater and you're living in sin, you go, I'm a follower of Christ. And they're like, which Christ? I'm telling you the truth. We get to be his witnesses. And a witness had one job. Just talk about what you saw and what you heard. That's the reason that Mark Twain quote is so powerful to me. Because he said, when you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Just tell the truth. You don't have to remember anything. Their conviction, these early disciples, the eyewitnesses, they had walked with Jesus. He died as the substitute for sin. He was not just some misguided prophet with some trippy message. He was God. He came to save people. I wrote this down. The apostles understood that this was the greatest act of grace ever displayed. That God in flesh was dying for rebellious creation. I'm like, that is so powerful. They're like, he's been raised from the dead. We saw it with our own eyes. We have proof. Acts 1.8, wait, 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 because his witness and being his witness, hear me on this one, it's not about what we can do for him, it's about what he can do through us. If you're going to be my witness and God, I'm going to use you, don't sit around and think about what you can do for me. I want you to focus on what I can do for you. So when you study the book of Acts and every chapter, you see the church, the ecclesia is following the Holy Spirit. And he's working in a bunch of crazy people here and there. He really is. And he's moving these believers to non-believers to testify about the goodness of the gospel. And you have to ask, have I yielded myself to the Lord? Have I yielded to Jesus Christ? Am I a part of the 29 movement? And if you want to do something that will help you maybe start to step into this, take verse 8 out of I told you, Acts 1.8, everything hinges on that. Pretty much the entire book is, is hinged on that one verse, right? But I would take that verse and say, but you, Marty, but you, Claire, but you, Richard, but you, Alex, you, Cameron, you, Ron, but you, Jack, but you, Linda, but you, Elaine, but you will receive power. Insert your name. But you, Rager, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witness. If you insert your name in there and personalize it saying, Tim Cash is his witness. Tim Cash received power when the Holy Spirit came upon him. The movement has begun. I want to be a part of the movement. I want to be a part of passing it on to others. Now let me give you this, and then I'm going to move toward wrapping it. Write this down. There's two ways to identify whether you have received the Holy Spirit. Two. There's, there, I could use more. I'm just going to simplify it with two. 
two ways to know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. One, every believer, true believer, has at least one spiritual gift. If I am truly saved, I know that the Holy Spirit has deposited inside of me a spiritual gift, whether it's teaching, whether it's serving, whether it's hospitality. I don't have time to go through them all, but a spiritual gift, just, it just, you've got to know this. A spiritual gift is given to you so that it can be extended through you so that other people can experience Jesus. The reason God gives spiritual gifts is not for man to be elevated and applauded. The only reason God gives spiritual gifts is for the mission of Jesus to continue. So whatever he's poured in you is to point people to him. And they all have one aim. So we have this thing. A spiritual gift assessment. You go, I don't even, I, I've never even done that. If you will write info at thecrossloganville.org, we have a spiritual gift assessment that we would send you the link to and you can go through it. You need to know this. Here's the second way, right? Spiritual gifts, yes. And the second way is the Holy Spirit empowers every person to testify. One of the ways that you know a person believes and has the Holy Spirit is they're going to testify. The Holy Spirit motivates us to proclaim truth. Anytime you see someone filled with the Holy Spirit, they're proclaiming the gospel to other people. I, I, I will prove this to you. If you look at Acts chapter, or should I say, if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 15, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. What does he do? He proclaims the coming of Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here comes Jesus. Luke 141, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. What does she do? She prays a blessing over Mary. The scripture says, and Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not poured out to everyone yet, collectively. Isolated situations. Zacharias, verse 61, uh, 7 of, of, of chapter 1, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied about the coming glory of the Lord. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, the Holy Spirit fills the apostles at Pentecost. We'll get to chapter 2 here in a few weeks. And what do they do? They began to declare God's truth in multiple languages because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what are you saying? I, I'm saying that being filled with the Spirit in our hearts produces the Word of God in our mouths. A person who has been filled with the Holy Spirit in their heart, their mouth will speak the word. It's just the way it works. Because of what, it, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Acts 4.8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he preaches to the rulers and, and the synagogue leaders that Jesus is their only hope of salvation. Oh, you, you cats are drunk, man. You're messed up. We're not filled with the Spirit. He's preaching. Acts 4.31, it says the disciples began to, to speak the word with boldness, even as they faced opposition. Acts chapter 9, Saul, the antagonist, meets Christ. Paul, the apologist, what does he initially do? He goes to the synagogue and testifies and preaches Jesus. Every person that radically encountered the Lord 
The Holy Spirit has been poured out now to us. And we're to walk in the Spirit and be controlled by the Spirit and filled by the Spirit. And the overflow is going to be you will consistently proclaim to others the good news of the gospel. That will be the consistent theme in your life. And you've got to ask, is that consistent? Is that the way it's working for me? Obey Jesus no matter what the cost. You're going to have opposition and persecution. People are going to get mad and attack you at times. Obey Jesus. Submit to Jesus. I would say this to you in close. Prophets in the Old Testament were rare. Now it is the assignment of every believer under the new covenant. Did you hear that? The prophets in the Old Testament were rare. There were a select few of Old Testament heroes. Now the responsibility is for us. It's, it's no longer rare to be a prophet and proclaim the message of the Lord. Because of the Holy Spirit, he can use any of us.